Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Are you saying I've got to go to seminary or divinity school before I can believe in God? Are you saying I shouldn't have emotions or be emotional about a belief in God? Are you saying that belief in God is purely a rational decision and not faith-based? No. What do you believe about God? Most people have asked themselves that question at one time or another. Some people come to the conclusion that they believe in God. Some people come to the conclusion that they do not believe in God. But have you ever stopped to ask why you believe what you believe? This is too big a subject to leave to chance or to feeling or to what fits best. This is too big, folks. We're talking heaven or hell, eternity kind of stuff. Hello and welcome to another edition of Crosswalk. If you're a regular to our program, you know that we've been working our way through what are called the general epistles or general letters of the New Testament in a series entitled Building on the Basics. For almost a year now, Pastor Clay has been taking us through these New Testament books, building on the basic of faith in the book of James, the basic of hope in First and Second Peter, and for the last few months, the basic of love in First John. Today we dive into the final chapter of 1 John, chapter 5, where, as Pastor Clay will explain in a moment, John summarizes much of what he has said throughout this letter, re-emphasizing some of the most important aspects of walking in love, including understanding the correlation between truth and love. In today's message, Pastor Clay is challenging us to take time to think about what we believe about Jesus Christ, why we believe what we believe, and how what we believe affects our daily lives, our reality. What you believe about God shapes your reality. It shapes your world. It shapes what you think about your world. It shapes what you believe about your world. It shapes how you act in your world. I'll be back at the end of the message to wrap things up. We're glad you've joined us today for this important message. Now here's Pastor Clay. When I was a kid, I made this uh, tree house, tree fort, out of a big cardboard box. I don't know if it was a refrigerator or washer and dryer. I don't know what it was, but it was a big box. And somehow I got this, uh, this idea that it would be a good idea to take this box way up in this big tree and wedge it between two big limbs. It was awesome. It was cool. I liked it. I liked my my tree fort. That's what I called it. One time, actually the last time I was ever in my tree fort, I climbed up the tree. I climbed into my box and I was laying in my box. You couldn't, it wasn't big enough. You couldn't like stand up in there. I was laying in my box and I was staring up into the, to the, the blue sky and I was admiring the, the big puffy stratocumulus clouds as they were floating by and just taking in life, you know, as a, whatever I was, seven, eight, nine year old, I don't know, something like that. Just taking in life, right? And then suddenly I felt this, boom, this just a little, boom. And, and then nothing, then it just, and just, just in an instant, just in a moment. You know that moment when you know this is not going to end well? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all ever had any of them moments? And I thought, I, I, maybe I should get out of the box. 
And whether it was my movement or what it was as I tried to kind of raise up or reach up to get out of the box, it let loose from the wedge. I remember the sound of, of leaves hitting the box. I remember the sound of cracking twigs and breaking limbs as, as I was hurling through space at what must have been surely almost terminal velocity. <laughs> I remember hitting the ground. I, I really do. When I was seven, eight years old, I, I still remember hitting the ground. That's about all I remember, but I remember hitting the ground and I don't remember much of anything for a while after that because apparently it knocked me out. And at some point, I woke up and I remember thinking, well, I think I'm still alive. I could move my hands. I could move my legs. And so slowly, I crawled out of what was left of my cardboard tree fort and made my way home and never told a soul about what I had done or what had happened because I knew if I did, my parents would want to have my head examined, not from the fall, but because I had been foolish enough to think that placing a cardboard box in a wedge on between two limbs was somehow a good idea. But I didn't think it through. I didn't, I didn't study the structural integrity of cardboard. I didn't, I didn't think about uh, the, the engineering required to wedge a, a box between two limbs without any kind of other support. I, I didn't think about any of that kind of stuff. It just seemed like it'd be a, a cool thing to do. It just seemed like a lot of fun. Years later, as a grown adult, at a Thanksgiving meal at my parents' house, I don't even know why, but this came up. I, I decided to tell this story that what had happened to me as a kid. I'm a grown adult and I tell this story about how I'd put this box there and the box fell one day and, and I got knocked out and all this stuff. And I, I was telling this story after all these years. I was finally telling somebody. My older brother, Ashley, then confessed that he had secretly climbed up the tree and pulled on the box in an attempt to scare me Supposedly never, never thinking for a moment that it would fall. <laughs> Brothers, I uh, can't live with them, can't kill them. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't think that one through very well. Let me ask you a question. Have you thought through what you believe about God and why you believe what you believe about God? You thought it through? Open your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 5. We'll see how far we get uh, with this this morning. But 1 John chapter 5, uh, we are making our way through uh, John's first letter to the churches. Uh, chapter 5 is the last chapter in 1 John. We won't get through all of it uh, today. We want to share an idea, really just one idea with you, one overarching idea. Uh, and then we'll, we'll look at more of it uh, next week. But 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And... Uh, I don't know for time's sake whether I should do this or not, but I really want to read the entire chapter this morning to put it so you understand the context and full of what he's saying and that sort of thing. If you've been with us through this series, perhaps, and, and thank you if you have been, especially through this section of 1 John, uh, you know, you probably have an idea of what John, this, these ideas he keeps bringing up over and over and over and over again, right, doesn't he? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, and the one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know what, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, that's a lot, isn't it? Water and blood and prayer and... Sins unto death and sins not unto death and a lot of stuff in there. We're not going to unpack it all today. But we're going to look at the, the first idea that I want to share with you from 1 John chapter 5. And it is this idea. Your theology shapes your reality. It really does. Whether you understand that at this point or even believe it at this point, your theology shapes your reality. Now, as I think I said a minute ago, next week we will get into more, in, more of the, the, the practicality, more of the practical application of, of what John is saying here. But we begin first with where we must always begin, and that is with our theology, with our belief system. Because, for the very reason that your theology, what you believe about God shapes your reality. It shapes your world. It shapes what you think about your world. It shapes what you believe about your world. It shapes how you act in your world. All of that is shaped by your belief about God. Now, technically, according to Google, theology is defined this way. 
It is religious beliefs and theory when systematically developed. Wikipedia puts it this way. The critical study of the nature of the divine. And then Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it, defines theologia as it would be in the Latin, reasoning or discussion concerning the deity. Now, that's interesting. Religious beliefs systematically developed, critical study, reasoning or discussion. Those are interesting terms because one of the problems in our culture, in our society today, is that nobody comes to a belief system based on that, or rarely, should I say. Most people don't systematically develop what they believe really about anything, but particularly about God. Most people don't do a critical study. Most people aren't in reasoning or discussion about uh, the things of God or much of anything. No, most people, and all of us, by the way, are guilty of it to some degree, but most people make decisions based not on a critical study or discussion, not on a systematic uh, uh, exploration, but based rather on our feelings and on our emotions. That is how most people make most of the decisions that they make in life. That's where most of their beliefs come from, based on their, on their feelings and based on their emotions. And John begins again to, to explore this theological idea of who Jesus Christ was and the importance of understanding who he was and who he is. I have had discussions with people on both ends of the belief spectrum. And I can tell you, on both ends of the spectrum, people are guilty of this idea of making decisions based on how they feel or what they think or what will be best for their life. I've had discussions with people who, would, who, who claim to be uh, atheistic. In other words, they do not believe in, in the existence of God or at least agnostic. They doubt the existence of God. And in some of those discussions I've had, when pushed for an answer as to why they believe what they believe, how they've come to the, the belief system that they have come to, more times than not, there are exceptions, but more times than not, I've gotten something like, I don't know, I just don't believe it. Or I, I, don't, want some, I don't want some ancient book telling me how to live my life. Or uh, religion's just not really my thing. By the way, religion's not our thing either because it's not about religion that's right it's about a relationship but more times than not i'm telling you that's the kind of answer i get so in the end what it really means is that most people who would claim to be atheistic they say no, i don't believe in god most people make that decision based on convenience in other words it just fits my life better to not believe in god that way I can live my life any way I want and I don't have to worry about, you know, some God judging me for my life decision. So I just choose to not believe in, uh, in that God. It is out of convenience sake that most people make a decision like that. And, and, and I'm telling you, all decisions, whether it is your belief about whether men ought to be allowed into women's restrooms or, or your belief about whether you think there's rampant racism in this nation or, or your belief about... Uh, spiritual matters and God, almost all of them come down to convenience sake or what I feel or what I think or maybe what I've heard somebody else say. And 
Sadly, on the other end of the belief spectrum, I've talked to people who professing believers, many of them active in church, and when I ask them, hey, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in the validity of the resurrection? Why do you believe in the reality of heaven and hell? Oftentimes, I've gotten an answer like, I don't know, I've just always believed it. Or, well, I grew up in church. Or, that's what that incredibly handsome, intelligent man standing up there telling me, so it must be true. Let me ask you a question this morning. And I'm put it up, I'm Tyler put it up on the, on the screen. Why do I believe what I believe about God? Whichever, whether you believe in God or say, no, I don't believe in God. Why do you believe? And this is a question I've asked before in, in one shape, form, or, or fashion, even through this, through this series that we've been in for a year. Why do I believe what I believe about God? Have you, have you done a, a systematic study of the arguments for and against the existence of God? Have you examined the uh, empirical evidence for the validity of the resurrection? Have you studied the extant manuscripts and, and scraps in textual criticism to study the text and to find out the, the, heris- the, 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 the veracity and the historicity of, the, of these documents? Have you uh, examined the motive behind the eyewitness accounts? Have you, uh, have you calculated the odds of all of the variety and all of the beauty and all of the complexity in the world that we see around us and how the possibilities of it having come into existence by itself? Have you done all of that stuff? Why do you believe what you believe about God? Well, sheesh, Clay. Are, are you saying I've got to go to seminary or divinity school before I can believe in God? No. Are, are you saying I, I, I shouldn't uh, have emotions or be emotional about a, a belief in God? No. Are you saying that belief in God is, is, is purely a, a rational decision and not faith-based? No. And if you stop asking questions, I tell you what I'm trying to say that was a joke because i'm am i what i'm saying is this is too big a subject to leave to chance or to feeling or to what i heard somebody else say that they believed or to to what fits best into this is this is too big folks this is we're talking heaven heaven or hell eternity kind of stuff. This is too big to just say, I don't know, I, I just don't believe it. Or I do believe it. Why do you believe what you believe about God? That's really what John is doing here. That's really what he's building here. And if you've been with us through this study, you know this throughout, that, that he's been building this case for how you can know that you believe and, and why you can know that you believe. And it kind of culminates in that, that crescendo of, of 1 John 5.13, where, where we read a moment ago, where it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the, the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. As I have told hundreds of people through the years, God does not want you to wish or wonder or hope that you have eternal life, God wants you to know that you have eternal life. And so John has been building this case. I said uh, at the beginning of this series that this, that this is really about, uh, that this, this letter is about love. 
But I also said, if you were here, that, that, that you would find, as we made our way through this letter, that love and truth are, are, in, are inseparable concepts. That love must be based on truth, or it's not really love at all if it's not based on actual truth. John's been building this, this case. He's been showing us why this is, this is so important. That there's just this inseparable relationship. And I also said throughout the series, probably several times, that there was a, a lot of widespread ideas and teachings floating around out there. A lot of false teaching, a lot of heresies were being developed. Most of it centered around the person of Jesus Christ. Who he was, what his relationship was to God. Right? Right? Remember, Christianity was birthed in a... This is my teaching time. Christianity was birthed in a Jewish context. Okay? And one of the things that separated the Jews from everybody else around them was the belief that there was only one God. Listen, we, don't, we can't even comprehend what a radical concept that was in the ancient world. There's only one God. They said, no, no, there's only, there's only one, one God. All other gods are fake, they're false, they're fabricated. There are no other gods. There's really just one true God. Everybody else had multitudes of gods. The Egyptians had, had multitudes of gods. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites... All right, just seeing if y'all are awake. Seeing if y'all are awake. They, they, all had their, they all had their plurality of gods. They all had multiple gods. The Greeks had multiple gods. The Romans had multiple gods. And, and, and Israel's coming along and said, no, no, no. There's just one God. There's just one God. That's a radical concept in the ancient world. And then here comes this little fledgling movement called Christianity. Birthed out of Judaism. And these Christians were coming along, and the Christians were saying, well, the, the Jews have got it right. There is only one God, but he is three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now listen, listen, come on, let's be honest. We don't even understand all of that today, right? We don't even understand how... How God, or the Godhead as it's sometimes presented, how, how he, God is one, but God is, doesn't appear as three. God is three distinct, different persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet, complete unity and oneness that makes up one God. We don't even understand that today. So imagine 2,000 years ago, this fledgling church grappling with this, trying to... Trying to, to to theorize and verbalize and, and come to some understanding about Jesus and, and who he was and his relationship to God, it, it, you can understand this would just be quite a dilemma. And so, and so false ideas are popping up everywhere. That's why, that's why, I, I, by the way, I'm convinced that God kept John around so long was because he was going to have to deal with some of these heresies that were arising. That's why the church had to develop its theology. And that's why theology is still so critical today. Because your theology shapes your reality. All right, let me give you a, a boring quote from most of you. G.K. Chesterton was a late 19th century, early 20th century philosopher, poet, author, theologian. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, if the church had not insisted on theology, a belief system about God, a systematic belief system about God, it would have melted into a mad mythology of the mystics, yet further removed from reason or even from rationalism, and above all, yet further removed from life and from the love 
of life. See, the belief in God is not an irrational concept at all. It actually is quite rational. So Chesterton understood it. the church had to develop a theology, and so do you and I today. We have to understand why we believe what we believe. Y'all with me? Students, youth, y'all, y'all still with me? Most of you? What did you just post on Facebook? Adults? Hey, post something good. I, I, I know. Okay, so one, one of, the, one of the, the primary false ideas that was floating around out there about Jesus came from a guy by the name of Serenthus. Now, Serenthus didn't come, on, come along until right, literally, at the end of the first century, the starting of the second century. But the belief system that he popularized was already, was already floating around out there like a cancer spreading, and it threatened to metastasize to the church. And so John takes it head on. That's what we're going to look at in just a moment, verses 6 through 10. John takes it head on. Now, here's what Serenthus believed. Serenthus believed and taught and was making popular the idea that, uh, that the, Spirit, the Spirit of God came upon Jesus at his baptism. In other words, prior to that, Jesus was, was only, he was merely a man. He was, he was born a man, he was just a man, but the Spirit came upon him at his baptism. And Serenthus further believed that uh, the Spirit left Jesus prior to his death, prior to the crucifixion, so that he died only or merely as a man. So John, John, John understands the, the danger of this kind of doctrine, and he takes it head on. According to uh, Leviticus, I think it's like chapter 19 or something like that, uh, Old Testament law required at least two or three witnesses to substantiate something as true. He had to have at least two, preferably three witnesses. So here in John, 1 John chapter 5, he's, getting, he's closing out his letter. He goes back to this idea one more time. He's going to pound this home one more time. He's made it, he's made it a, a, a doctrine for, for, for belief. That's how you know you can believe. He's made it a test for teachers. He said it over and over again. You've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God in the flesh. So one more time, he approaches this idea, and he takes this heresy head on, and he begins to explore this idea. He brings it up again in the first part of verse 1 where he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You have to have this understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the one sent from God. He wasn't just a man and all this kind of stuff. So here, here John, he begins to delve in. you got to have two or three witnesses. So John, as we're going to see in just a second, offers up not one, not two, not three, not even four, but five witnesses to the reality of who Jesus Christ was. So he begins here in, uh, in verse 6 when he says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Now, that, you know, for us today, it's kind of like, well, what? Okay. The readers in the day John penned this, they would have understood this because they understood the popularity of Serenthus's uh, teaching. Virtually, virtually all conservative scholarship agrees that John is referring in the water, that he's referring to Jesus' baptism, and in the blood, he's referring to Jesus' crucifixion. He's tackling this heresy that's floating around out there, and, and so essentially John is saying, oh no, oh no, he was divine at his baptism, and he was divine at his crucifixion. He was God at his baptism, he was God at the crucifixion. He, he was always God. 
can see it in the in the historical event of the baptism, see it in the historical event of the crucifixion. You see the evidence uh, of this man's deity in those actions. And then he brings in the witness of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in verse 7 and 8. Y'all with me? And it is the Spirit who bears witness. Watch this, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Everybody knows historically that the evidence of the Spirit of God was all over Jesus' life. His teachings, what was it they said? No, never has a man taught like this before. His, his healings, his miracles, the other works that he, he did, all of those things were evidence of the, of the presence and the power of the Spirit of God upon Jesus. And John says the Spirit is evidence itself. And the historical event of the baptism is evidence. And the historical event of the crucifixion and, and by connection, the resurrection, where his deity was on full display, all of those are witnesses that this guy really is God. You've got to understand this, he's saying. You've got to know this. You've got to believe this. He really is God. Because everybody's saying, well, maybe he was kind of God, or maybe he was God for a little while, or, or maybe he was just a good man and with some good teachings. Or maybe, and he says, no, 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 no. He's God. So there's your three witnesses that you, that you need to have. But John says, but wait, I, I'm not done. In verse 9, he says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his son. So now all of a sudden he's talking about God the Father, isn't he? The relationship between the Father and the Son. So you've already had the three witnesses, and now now John calls God the Father as a witness. At least, that I can think of, at least twice. Matthew chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 17, I think. At least twice we know that God the Father... uh, in the presence of many witnesses, spoke and people heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So John says, hey, listen, listen, guys, you, you got the baptism as witness. You got the crucifixion, resurrection as witness. You've got the spirit as witness. You've got the father as witness. You've got four witnesses. And if you believe a man, you sure ought to believe God. But wait, just to put one more nail in the coffin of this heretical teaching John says there's one more witness you ready and it's you look what he says in verses 10 and 11 the one who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself he has the witness in himself the one who does not believe God has made him a liar you just no, I don't believe you okay you call him a liar because he's not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. If you believe in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have the very witness of God within yourself. Listen to me. I don't want to brag, but I know I've been redeemed. I know from what I was saved and from the life I had been choosing and from what, how God has changed me, I know it. I know what he has done to me and, and what he's doing through me. I, I know it. I know what it is to hear God speak to me. Don't freak out. I'm not saying it's like out loud or whatever. But I know what it is to, ha- to, to know that God has spoken to me. I know what it is to feel his presence and to feel completely unworthy of being in his presence at that moment. I know it. The witness is within me. I know it myself. And this is not, this is not some defense mechanism for a weak-minded person. This is not a belief of, of an uneducated person. 
This is not a, a, a acid trip or, or, or a, a Rocky Mountain. Hi. It's not, I know it. I know it. Because the Spirit of God witnesses within me to the reality that the moment I came to recognize that I was a sinner separated from God and that Jesus Christ was and is God in the flesh, I, when I really came to know that and understand it, the moment I asked Him to forgive me of my sins and come into my life and be my Savior, in that moment, I knew the reality that Jesus really is God. Because listen to me, only God, only God could do this. Only God could bring this change. Don't don't take that wrong. I'm I'm sure far from perfect. But I'm just saying only God could change me from who I was to who he's shaping me to be. I got to close. I know. But let me tell you, I haven't haven't, haven't mentioned this guy in a couple of years. So uh, some of you may remember, some of you won't. But I grew up with a guy named Wayne Brown. Wayne, uh, you know, he he was an okay guy as a kid growing up. Um, but he, well, he was mischievous and it was easy for him to get in trouble and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, one summer as a teenager, he was working uh, with a roofing crew, putting roofs on uh, industrial buildings, businesses and things like that. And uh, his, his job was carrying buckets of hot tar, liquid tar, up, uh, up a ladder and handing up to the guy up them. And one day when Wayne was doing that, as he handed the bucket uh, to the the guy, the guy took the bucket and it slipped out of his hand and it fell back on Wayne. The bucket poured onto Wayne's body, this hot, boiling hot tar. I, I can't even comprehend or imagine the pain that must have been involved in that. It literally burnt his ear off. It burnt permanent scars all the way down. And I, I forget, forgive me, I forget if it's the right or left side. I should know that. But whichever side, it completely burnt. He was in the hospital for months. And can I tell you this? When Wayne Brown got out of there, when he got out of the hospital, he was just mean, man. He was just plumb mean. And, and, and in some way, you might say, man, who can blame him? Going through something like that. And Wayne, sure enough, we, in high school and stuff, truly, I mean, we, this, we didn't put this in the yearbook, but Wayne was unofficially voted most likely to end up in prison. Because, because that's, that's, you just knew it. He was already in trouble. He was going to be in trouble. And sure enough, after, after uh, high school, he got involved in, in uh, gangs and, and drugs and running drugs. And, uh, and I mean, it, it was a mess. It was a, it was, you just knew he was going to end up in prison or in the cemetery uh, in pretty short order. And Wayne uh, says that he was uh, flying. I, I don't think he was flying. He was escorting a plane load of drugs. Now, I don't, again, I don't remember if it was marijuana or cocaine. It doesn't matter. From Columbia uh, to the United States, to Florida. The plane developed engine trouble and it was crash landing in the Everglades. It was going down in the Everglades and, and Wayne made one of those, and it wasn't the first one, Wayne made one of those foxhole uh, commitments. You know what I'm saying? He, he said, he said, he said out loud, he said, God, if you'll let me live through this, the plane's going, he said, God, if you'll let me live through this, I'll turn my life over to you. The plane crashed and Wayne, Wayne lives. He comes out of the old, D, it was an old DC-3. Now, let me tell you something. Not everybody that has made those kind of commitments has kept them in that moment of crisis. But Wayne did. He says he, he, he got out. It's a swampy area if you've ever seen the Everglades. But there was a piece of a dry ground. And there was a, he said there was, one, there was a cabbage palm there. And he, and he knelt down at that cabbage palm. And he invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of his life. To come into his life and save him. Now, this was taking place during a time period where I, I hadn't had any contact. I hadn't seen Wayne in 
quite some time. And, uh, and I didn't really know about any of this until Cindy and I uh, ran into him one day. Uh, I think first it was at the movie theater. And, uh, and he was just radically, he was just, he's just full of joy. And he's, and he's talking about Jesus and what God has done in his life and, and all this kind of stuff. And the next time we saw him was at the Speckle Perch Festival. I'm sure you all have heard of that. It's a world famous Speckle Perch Festival in Okeechobee. And one of, the, one of the highlights of the Speckle Perch Festival was the turtle race where they have a bunch of turtles that would race. It was, it was scintillating. It was scintillating stuff. It was amazing. Wayne, Wayne is in the, he's got his turtle in the race and painted in neon orange on, on the shell. I'm sure, I'm sure Peter would, would not have been happy about this. Painted on the shell of his turtle is Jesus saves and great big orange things on, on this big box turtle. Today, Wayne is, has been now longer than I have, has been involved in vocational ministry. I, I'm just saying, only God can do that, folks. You can't, you can't clean up your act. You can't think, well, I'll be good, or, I'll, or I need to fly better. Or I need, yeah, you can do that for your time. Only God can change a life. And that change becomes the very witness within you. This really is true. This really is true. Why do you believe what you believe about God? Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, why do you believe it? If you say, I don't believe it, I just don't believe it, get honest with yourself. Ask yourself, is it just because I, it just fits better with my life? Because I don't want to be bothered with it? Because I don't want to think about it? Because, is it because of that? Then I challenge you to at least examine the evidence. And if you're here and you say, well, I do believe in God, then let me challenge you to say, let it change my life. Let it go out and make me the person that I'm supposed to be. Let my theology shape my reality so that what I believe, what I tell others, how I act, the way I treat my spouse, the, the way I, I act at, at work, that all of those things come under the influence of my theology of what I believe about God. In a court of law, a witness is a powerful piece of evidence. As we just heard, John presents no less than five witnesses to substantiate that Jesus Christ was and is God in the flesh. You know, still today, there are all kinds of false teachings and cults that promote a picture of Jesus Christ that is less than what the Bible teaches. As Pastor Clay has shown us today, having the right theology about the person of Jesus Christ is critical because our theology really does shape our reality. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting. If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. 
God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships, and instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. A new church for people like you. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.